0: Welcome to Highlawn Baptist Church in St. Albans, West Virginia, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. We're so glad you're here. For more information, visit us online at Church.org. For 2023, we're embarking on the year of our Lord, a user's guide to and through the scriptures. So grab your Bible and join us as we journey through the Bible.
1: We are in session six of our journey through the Bible. As we're continuing to move through it in a year's time, but as always, whenever we look at Scripture, we always want to do so um, with in a season of prayer. So let's bow our hearts together. Heavenly Father, please bless this time and our efforts, uh, both to increasing an awareness of Your wisdom and uh, helping us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Savior, helping to conform us into His image and to better be a light reflecting your love before others. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So today we're covering Jacob and Joseph, what would be the the latter piece of the book of Genesis from chapters 27 through 36. So we've already covered uh, the patriarchs Abraham and Isaac to a point. Now if you're following along in your regular reading, this is where... Uh, Isaac starts to transition over to Jacob, who will later be known as Israel, and the story of his son, who saves the family through some very odd circumstances. So anyway, uh, one of the things that I really wanted to highlight as we get into this study is the way in which we study our Bible, and there are several ways that you can do that. Uh, There's... The archaeological lens that you can look at the Scripture through, basically looking at it as a tool to study history, to focus on the history and the sociology of the people of God in days past, up to and including our Savior. There's the theological lens where we try to find the way that everything connects together with Christ into the rise of the church. The theological focus on the, the rise of Christian doctrine. There's a comparative way to study, where you take a topic, instead of just reading through the Bible the way that we're doing in order of of the books, and you uh, find, for instance, worship. You look through every passage of Scripture that has to do about worship, and you see what the Bible has to tell us by comparing them all together. And of course, there's the usual way that people delve into Scripture um what we call during our quiet time which is the devotional way the personal way and there are three things that we need to pay attention to during our devotional reading this is where you want to be slow steady and deliberate to be observant uh to 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 look at things to to be observational uh the who's what's when's and where's of the scripture the the details but then there's Not just noticing the details, but interpreting the details, understanding the whys, understanding the inward, the heartfelt motivation behind what happens in Scripture and where the Bible reveals it, the motivations in the heart of God. And of course, there's application. How does what I have just read impact me? How does it answer questions that I have had? And how can I integrate what it teaches me into my life? So those are the four different ways to study the Bible. Again, we're taking a look at the life now of, as Isaac is now transitioning, as the Bible transitions from the life of Isaac to the life of his sons. So we have, uh, Isaac has his wife. He's currently residing in the area around the Dead Sea, close to um. close to the area that would come to be Hebron and Bethlehem in that area and uh, the uh, south of Jerusalem, to the southwest of Jerusalem. So just to review really quickly, Abraham was the beneficiary of an unconditional and everlasting covenant. He can't add to it. He can't subtract from it. He is simply the beneficiary of it. And we saw that when God took the covenantal walk by himself. He basically took the, he shouldered on himself everything that has to do with this promise so he was promised that the family of that his family a child of promise would be born to him and his family would eventually become a great nation not only that but abraham's own name would be made great as it has that he would himself would be a blessing that all the families on all the peoples of the worlds all the nations of the worlds would be blessed through him and that uh, God himself would bless Abraham's allies and curse his enemies. I will bless those that bless you and curse those who curse you, promise of God. And so all throughout his life, we see these reoccurring patterns and we will see them passed down to his children as well. Abraham lived in a near constant struggle between trying to interpret life through his own wisdom and through the lens of God's wisdom. Faith versus works, the flesh versus the spirit. There is the Ishmael, the son of human wisdom, the son of the flesh, the son of works, the son of doubt. Paul actually picks up on this and writes about his place later on. The son of the bondswoman, Hagar. And of course there is Isaac, the son of promise, the son born unto the free woman, Sarah the person who would later become the husband of Rebecca. Isaac also throughout scripture represents God's wisdom, God's grace, and those that are faithful to God, the child of the spirit, the son of the promise who is given as an offering. And this part of his history is a foreshadowing of events that we would be the beneficiary of later on as another father would offer his son on that same ridge system several years, several hundreds of years later. There is also the storage of this strange person called Melchizedek, who was a foreshadowing of Christ. In fact, Paul regards him as Paul regards Jesus himself as a priest under the order of Melchizedek. We talked about that in the last session. I won't belabor that here. And of course, there was the offering of Isaac as a testament of faith, where we start to see this emerging truth that the justified, the just shall live by faith. Faith. So here are the descendants of Abraham, and as you continue to read through Genesis, you'll notice that when Sarah dies, Abraham actually takes another wife, Keturah, for whom he has been uh, has several children at issue. And remember, Abraham is 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 about a century plus old at this point in time. Now Ishmael, as promised by God, has 12 princes, 12 different uh, leaders will emerge from him. And Keturah also has uh, several children who become the descendants of, in the, in the case of Jukshan up there, the, uh, someone he is regarded as the ancestor of the Saudis, Saudi Arabia. And Midian, who's later on born, becomes the forerunner of the Bedouins. And it's also, uh, should be noted, that these two, the children of Hagar and the children of Ketur, intermingle and cross-marry several different times. But the line coming from Isaac through Jacob usually remains consistent with the exception of of a couple of of outliers that were prohibited from doing so, but they did anyway. Jacob, his name, Yaakov, is a compound word um, if you put it all together, he means he that supplants or he that undermines. Akeb means heel because as his older brother was being born, they were twins, but uh, Esau was actually the firstborn. And Jacob comes out and he grabs his brother Esau by what? By the heel. And that becomes his name, Jacob, the heel catcher, which means that sly, deceitful, insidious, he who grabs the heel or more... Or more uh, Jokingly, I guess, he who trips up. Also, by right, by custom, Esau is the firstborn, so Jacob comes to covet Esau's birthright, even though in in Scripture we know that uh, the promise was always intended to go to Jacob. We're going to see a lot of dysfunction occur in this family, so pay attention to it. Uh, In Genesis... Chapter 5, starting with verse 32, uh, we read, Look, said Esau, I'm about to die. He comes back home, and he is starving. He believes that he's about ready to perish. And he is the, I hate to put it this way, but it's the truth. He's the preferred of his father. He is the hunter. He is the man's man, so to speak, of the family. Jacob, on the other hand, is his mother's favorite. He's the the, the younger, the fairer. He's the one that that she considers her favorite. So the older comes to the younger, having been out in the hunt, looks at Esau, I'm about to die, so what good is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me first. He has a, a pot of lentils. In some of your translations, it says pottage, but it's effectively cooked lentils that we're talking about here. Swear to me, so he swore to Jacob and sold his birthright to him. He had contempt. Esau, the older of the two, actually had contempt on his birthright, which was a promise made uh, that would have fallen on him from Abraham, passed on to Isaac. And he had contempt for it. He had contempt for the land of promise. In fact, when we come later on to the book of um, Ruth, part of the the drama, the -the behind-the-scenes drama of Ruth chapter 1 is the fact that when Ruth's husband and their male children left Bethlehem and went to live in in Moab, excuse me, that they were regarded as traitors of Israel because they abandoned the land. So to abandon the promise of God is seen in a very dark light. So when it says he had contempt on his birthright, it means that God is now judging that contempt that he had because he is not only despising the promise, but in effect, he's despising the God who gave that promise. Jacob gave bread and lentil stew to Esau He ate, he drank, he got up, and he went away. So Esau despised or had contempt on his birthright as the firstborn of this very prominent family. I'd rather be out hunting. I'd rather do what I want to do. I would rather satisfy my own longings, fulfill my own interests. I don't want to have anything to do with the family with God is effectively what the Bible is suggesting. And we see this picked up on the way that God interprets this through the lens of eternity as penned by Paul in Romans chapter nine. For through her sons, for though her sons, excuse me, had not yet been born or yet done anything good or bad so that God's purpose according to the election might stand not from works, but from the one who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, I have loved Jacob, but I have what? Hated Esau. The God who is sovereign is the God who knows, who understands the heart, even though we cannot. So Esau, his name, or Jacob's name was kind of comical in a way, so is Esau's. Esau's name translates to Harry. He will later be known as Edom. Which means red. His descendants, who formed their own nation, are regarded as or labeled the Edomites later on. Esau was the firstborn, but not the firstborn of Isaac, but not the chosen one to carry on the family legacy, the family name. He had disdain for his birthright, and he was not chosen by God to be the patriarch. He sells his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of lentils. He tries to steal back that birthright through deceit. And it was a deceit that his his father knows all this is going on. We can interpret that this story had already gone ahead, and if not, through Romans, we hear that, that his mother knew that God had favor on Jacob. But Esau eventually, apparently, comes to his senses and through greed wants to receive the blessing anyway. He married into Ishmaelite and Canaanite clans and became again the father of of Edom, the father of the Edomite nation. So just some quick highlights along this section of Genesis. All parties in this family story are guilty of something. Isaac attempted to bypass God's plan by blessing Esau when Jacob was the one chosen by God. Esau broke his oath with Jacob And on the other hand, Rebekah and Jacob obtained God's, Isaac's blessing, God's blessing inferred, through deception. He, He was going to be blessed anyway, but they choose to use human wisdom and destroy the family in order to get this done their way, not God's way. So sin comes about, resulting in hatred and separation. Jacob never saw Rebecca again. Once this scene was completed, he deserted the family. He flees to, um, to Laban's family in the, Aram, the, the Panad Aram era just north of the Sea of Galilee. And she dies while he's in a self-imposed exile. Paternal parent, uh, preference destroyed this family. Rebekah and Jacob succeeded only in getting what God would have given to him anyway. So through deceit, they alienated their loved ones. Jacob fled from his family to face his life alone. But yet, God was still at work. God was still gracious in seeing past the sin to keep his promise to Abraham. God is gracious. God is faithful. And it also should give us hope because if God can redeem Jacob, he can work with anybody. So applications. Um, Paternal favoritism results in divided loyalties. It destroyed trust within the family, and it destroyed the family. It ended up in a severe separation between everybody. Uh, We also see spiritual insensitivity coming up. It's the same struggle that Abraham had here. Do I trust God's wisdom or do I trust my wisdom? Do I focus on the problem or do I go to the God who I know is the solution? Do I do things my way, my preference, or do I wait, be patient, and understand that God is faithful and I wait on his time? Reliance on one's own wisdom in a place of discerning God's will or waiting on God's timing. That is spiritual sensitivity. But here they demonstrate spiritual insensitivity. They try to do things their own way and it destroys their family because of it. So, deception on Jacob's part. Jacob's only reluctance, if you take a look at chapter 27, verse 12, Jacob's only reluctance that he voices in the way that he obtains the blessing of Isaac. His only concern is that Isaac will end up cursing him instead of blessing him. Not his, the love of his father, not the relationship he has with God in the degree of sin. He's worried that his father will find out and punish him with a curse. Later on in life though, he would learn the lesson that divine blessings are given They're not taken through human trickery. Divine blessings are given. They're not taken. So here's Jacob's journey to Haran and back. He starts out um, right to the west of the Dead Sea. Travels all the way north to Haran where he visits, is welcomed by and ends up serving in almost a, a slave labor, but a a higher management capacity later on for Laban. And then once he's able to break away, he gets tricked into working for several years. He he works to pay off the dowry in in a way um, because in this culture, the husband-to-be pays a redemption price. Write that down. The husband-to-be pays a redemption price for the bride. And in Jacob's case, He did it through labor. Several years for who he thought was Rachel because of a veil, but the veil is flipped up and who does he see instead? Leah, the older sister. Well, in Laban's, Laban's excusing himself. I know I promised you uh, Rachel, the one that you actually love, but it doesn't make any sense to, to not marry the older sister first. So he tricks Jacob, into working for him several more years, double the amount of time. But the Bible tells us that he had such an overwhelming love, such a passionate love, a love that could survive uh, survive pain. That's what passion really means. A love that is capable of enduring suffering. He has such a passionate love for Rachel that the years that go by, go by quickly. So, summary of the next few chapters. Chapter 29, Jacob is deceived into marrying Leah, the older sister, the one that he doesn't particularly like. Uh, In 30, he works off the amount of time required to marry Rachel and also that chapter, the 12 tribes of Israel, the predecessors of the 12 tribes of Israel are born. Jacob is able to secure a fortune and escapes Aram and, and Laban and returns to Canaan. And there's this interesting scene here that we often misquote. Uh, may this stand as a witness between you and me. Well, that's not actually a blessing. That was a peace treaty that says, if you go north again, then Laban may attack you. If you go south again, then, I'll cons- then Jacob considers it's a, a violation. It's. I'll let you read through that. Anyway, he returns to Canaan where he at a place that will later be called Bethel, the house of God, he wrestles this figure. And the figure asks Jacob, what is your name? And after learning all these lessons, after enduring all this conflict, after the trickster has been tricked himself, barely escaping, but being blessed by God nonetheless, I will not let you go until you bless me, he says. And he wrestles the figure. And the figure says, what is your name? And he says, my name is Jacob. My name is the deceiver. My name is the hill hill catcher. My name is the deceitful one. And the figure says, no. From this time forward, you will be known as Israel because you have wrestled with God. Israel. So Jacob returns and journeys back to the area just to the west of the Dead Sea, the Salt Sea. Esau comes up to meet him, and Esau has grown. In stature, in power, in authority. The Edomite kingdom with its armies is at its, an infant stage, but it's already powerful. And Israel now is afraid that he's going to be destroyed. But God makes a way for the brothers, the individual brothers, to reconcile themselves in chapter 33. And we see the two embrace for the first time in all those years. In chapter 34, we have a sad scene where Dinah, daughter of Israel, is captured and kidnapped by a prince of a local city-state named Shechem. And after the attack, he falls in love with her. He wants to make her his wife. And two of the older sons of Israel, ironically, Levi, for whom the Levitical priesthood would eventually come, and Simeon, plot against this whole city and end up slaughtering them. And as a result, Jacob ends up mixing them from the the firstborn lineup. The next chapter, um, Jacob returns to Bethel. Rachel dies in childbirth while she's having her last son, Benjamin. She names him Ben-Amin, which roughly translates as to the son of my sorrows. But once she passes away, Israel renames him Benjamin, which means the son of my right hand or the son of my most favored one. Reuben also sins against Jacob by physically attacking and and trying to uh, maritally possess, if you will, one of uh, Jacob's concubines, and he gets disavowed as the firstborn. That's how eventually what would become the tribe of Judah rises to be the tribe of the royal house. So you have when jo- it's Joseph, it should be Jacob. I'm sorry. When Israel is first married to Leah, Leah, in quick succession, he has four children. He has Ruben, excuse me, Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah. Now again, Reuben should have been considered the firstborn of the family. That's the double portion of the inheritance acting as the priest and the political leader of the family. However, when he attempts to rape uh, Jacob's concubine, he loses that status. And it should have passed to Simeon. But because he and Levi were men of violence in attacking and killing off the city of Shechem, those two are disavowed too. So the firstborn status falls from Reuben to Simeon to Levi and finally to Judah, which becomes the predecessor of the royal line and the family from which Jesus would finally come. Jacob is eventually, after many years, able to marry Rachel, who the Bible tells us he loved more than life itself. Incidentally, the two stars there means that uh, she was married in the second order. Eventually, we're going to have four wives up here. That's why I did that. But Rachel is barren for a long time. So she gets this idea that she will allow Jacob, or rather she will push Jacob into having a second marriage with um, her handmaiden, her servant girl, Bilhah, which was the same practice that Sarah put on Abraham all those years ago so that she could have children through this new concubine, this handmaiden. So Bilah, Bilhah, excuse me, marries Jacob, and as his concubine, she ends up having two children, Dan and Naphtali. Well, Leah gets in mind that, hey, this is working up pretty well for Rachel, so I'm gonna do the same thing. So she offers him her handmaiden, Zilpha. And through that marriage, they have Gad and Asher. So we're up to eight children so far. And after the eighth child is born, finally Rachel is able to have her firstborn son, and his name was Joseph. Joseph is the ninth in order, but he eventually becomes the first in prominence. I'll explain that more in just a second. So Leah eventually has two more children after Joseph is born. That's Issachar and Zebulun. So Leah, the first wife, actually ends up having a grand total of six children, half of the half of the patriarchs of the 12 tribes come from Leah. Then finally, Benjamin is born as the 12th. Now, if you've done any Bible studies with me at all, you notice that there are a couple of names missing. Toward the end of the book of Genesis, after the incident where Joseph becomes prime minister of Egypt, Joseph himself, is elevated to becoming, in effect, Joseph's brother, uh, Jacob's brother, excuse me. And that happens because Jacob ends up in, um, adopting into his own family, Manasseh and Ephraim. So you end up with 13, effectually 13 tribes. You have Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, what will become the half-tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim in the tribe of Benjamin? And sometimes when you, when you order, there's always 12 tribes spelled out in the word of God. And more often than not, it's because somebody is being left out for some reason. In the book of Revelation, for instance, Dan is completely left out. Dan was the first tribe to subscribe to idolatry. And it is believed that God remembers that. And so when the roll call is taken in the book of Revelation, that he has been effectively disowned. There's also the fact that Levi, in military campaigns, the tribe of Levi is exempt from military service. So whenever you have a battlefield formation, Levi is always going to be left out because they're guarding the temple or they're guarding the tabernacle, and they're also serving as the king's own guard. So you, you effectively have a baker's dozen. But whenever they're listed, pay attention to who's left out. From this point on in Scripture, whenever they're listed and you see only 12, pay attention to who's left out because there is a purpose there. The head of the household, speaking of, of heads of household or, or how the firstborn works, if you will, The heir apparent of the first ward gets a double portion of the inheritance, acts as both the legal and the spiritual head of the family. Esau had forfeited, or if you will, sold his inheritance for a bowl of soup. Reuben was disavowed because of his physical assault, his, his trying to assert himself over his father by this assault on Bilhah, Jacob's concubine. Simeon and Levi, again, were disavowed because of what had happened in Shechem. So Judah becomes the the royal line. Joseph is promoted to being an equal or a brother of Israel himself. Here's where we start to see that pattern of dysfunction repeating. Joseph was the firstborn of the woman that Israel loved more than life itself. So Joseph becomes the most favored of all the sons of Israel. And what happens to that family? Something else that we need to discuss, and I'm only going to do it really quickly in passing, but you need to understand what's going on. There's this incident, this very bizarre incident in Genesis chapter 38, where Tamar, a woman who is betrothed and who marries the firstborn son of Judah, a person named Ur, ends up becoming Ur's widow. And he dies without a child to carry on his family name. I'll leave you to read the rest of what is going on in that passage. It's a strange passage, but you need to know about some of the the cultural practices going on, because if you don't, This passage will not make sense, the book of Ruth will not make sense, and to some extent the book of Revelation will not make sense. There is a custom at that time that we've begun to call a leverite marriage, lever meaning the brother of the husband. It's where when, when a husband dies without having someone to carry on the family name, the next oldest brother marries that widow One, it's for her protection, and two, it's so that in that union, a a son may be produced to carry on the family name. And when that child is born, he effectively gains the inheritance of the deceased father. Are you with me so far? Okay, so that's a Leverite marriage. In certain instances, it's also linked to a tradition called the Goel or the Kinsman Redeemer. That's the book of Ruth. And that's also the foreshadowing of what we see happen with the seals in the book of Revelation. Because a a Goel or a kinsman redeemer, when a family member dies and land goes fallow, the land, the promised land is precious to the people of Israel. In fact, you cannot if you were part of the 12 tribes and you had an allotment that was given to you and your family at the time of Joshua, up until about the the mid part of the second temple period, you could not sell land. You could not buy land. You could sell off the use of land, effectively leasing that property for a certain period of time. But after the, uh, the year of Jubilee happened, all of the previously leased property returned to the original owner. The land of promise is precious to these families. And so when a claimant to part of that property dies out, the next in line becomes a redeemer of the property to keep it in the family line, to keep it in the family name. They're also referred to as the avenger. Because if someone dies, if someone is murdered in the family, someone is picked from among the family to be the person that goes out to seek vengeance or to seek justice, For the person who had been killed. Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. In the book of Revelation, Jesus becomes the one who brings the property of God back to God and to his children, which is us. And Jesus is also the one who ultimately defeats the first murderer who was Satan. Now remember Why did death come into this world? He's regarded as a liar and a murderer. Even though he didn't plunge a a dagger into the heart of Adam and Eve, so to speak, he's the reason they're dead. And because sin sin had entered the world, it's the reason that we all are mortal. Anyway, let's, let's move on. Highlights from Joseph's life now. Joseph was the most favored son of Israel. It shouldn't have been that case, but it was because he was the eldest son of his beloved Rachel. He was given the coat of many colors, which ought, which which made a bad situation worse. He has dreams also of being preeminent among his family. Two in particular. There's the dream of the sheaves, where his sheaf remains standing upright while the the rest of them, the other. 11, fall in obeisance to his. And then there's this, this dream that he has where the stars of the sky start to bow to him. And not only the stars, but the sun and the moon also. This is also a passage of Scripture you need to understand for Revelation because here Israel himself interprets Joseph's dream and he also interprets that part of Revelation for us because when the woman comes out, uh, clothed with the sun, moon, and stars, and so forth, you you understand that the sun and the moon represent Israel and his mother, um, Rachel. Anyway, moving on. Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers. He serves and is later imprisoned falsely by a captain of the Royal Guard, a gentleman named Potiphar. And he also grows to interpret the dreams of someone that, two people that he's imprisoned with. And I want you to notice that the themes of the bread and the wine are played out here too. They were introduced uh, with Melchizedek. When Melchizedek received Abraham's tithe, he went out and he had fellowship with him through the giving of bread and the giving of wine. And here we see also these two people coming to Joseph for his interpretation of their very bizarre dreams. There's the baker, the royal baker, and the royal rind steward. And finally, because of all that, he ends up gaining the, um, he ends up gaining the attention of Pharaoh. He interprets Pharaoh's dreams, and Pharaoh makes him effectively prime minister of the empire of Egypt. So this is his sojourn. He's sold um, into slavery. He's transported all the way over to Ramesses in Egypt, where he is put into slavery in the capital of that day, a place that is perfect for him, uh, for God's will to be worked out in his life. This is a really quick map of the different back-and-forth journeys made by Joseph's brothers going to visit him, not knowing that it's him, coming back to report to his father, and then returning, and then moving the whole family. And again, very briefly, when he becomes prime minister of the world, he works very shrewdly to bulk up Egypt's supply of food so that in this part of the world, when a severe famine hits that lasts for a period of seven years, the area of Canaan East, and everything that is around the Sinai and everything into Egypt, it's all running dry for food. Egypt thrives because when Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams, they square away all of this surplus grain for a period of seven years of plenty so that when the famine hits, they are prepared and they're able to ration and sustain the kingdom. So Joseph interprets the prophetic dreams of Pharaohs. Again, there's the seven fat cows who end up being devoured by seven almost skeletal cows. That's enough to shake someone from sleep. Seven ripe heads of grain devoured by seven thin ones, which he interprets as being seven plentiful years followed by famine. And of course he organizes the rescue of Egypt. He's installed in prime minister. In fact, Pharaoh himself says, no one in my kingdom will be higher than you are except except Pharaoh himself. So famine brings his brothers to beg for food in the kingdom of Egypt. He he starts off by keeping Simeon as a hostage so that he could eventually see his brother Benjamin, who Israel wants to keep close to himself because he's the last surviving son in his mind because he thinks Joseph is dead. He's the last surviving son of his beloved Rachel. But later on, he breaks down in emotion and he reveals to his brothers who he is. He doesn't have the beard anymore. He now looks like an Egyptian. He talks like an Egyptian. He actually has someone else interpret for him. He plays this game of subterfuge. And finally, he can't take it anymore as they're talking about the family and the suffering. Does my father yet live? And this this man now, who was in a position to exact vengeance, to exact his revenge, to kill off all of his brothers that wanted to kill him. Instead. Instead. He embraces them. He provides for their needs. He reconciles to them. So Israel and the, his entire household migrate to Egypt as royal guests. In fact they're given the choicest of the lands of lower Egypt, the land of Goshen. Joseph, his sons are adopted as direct sons of Israel, promoting Israel, uh, Joseph himself as a brother. And strange thing, there's a lot, of the, a lot of cases here that we've talked about where the child who's born first is actually passed over as the firstborn. Ephraim who is the younger brother is actually blessed over Manasseh, and we'll see that actually come to play when we look at the books of the, uh, the books of the Kings, and the books of the Chronicles. Joseph later on oversees the embalming of Israel when he passes away, and he makes his brother's promise. Um, well, he carries out the promise that. Israel will be returned to the promised land and he asks the same favor of himself once he is passed on and has been prepared. There are a lot of, at the very end of the book of Genesis, there are a lot of very cryptic sounding prophecies. Some are blessings. Some are prophetic insights that Israel himself hands over to his sons that will be picked up by the descendants that will become these tribes. And I want to go over one in particular with you because it directly affects us as Christians. Talking about the scepter of Israel. Now this comes from Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. The scepter refers to the degree of natural sovereignty. It's Israel's ability to enforce its own law, to enforce Torah. And one of the benchmarks of that is the ability to dole out, when necessary, capital punishment. In the first century, in roughly 6 AD, a Roman official by the name of Archelaus was named as the first antharch of of Judah. King Herod had passed away. His children were seen, majority of them were seen as unfit, those that were survivors. So the area of Palestine, in the Roman mind, was split into several different regions. And Ariaclus was one, I believe, that was over the area where we would consider Judah, where Jerusalem is located. In 7 AD, Caponius becomes the anthrarch, and the Sanhedrin, who is the governing body of Israel, it's the learned, the most august body in the temple which, for, uh, which has legal authority in the kingdom. The Sanhedrin loses all of its legal authority and it has to, if you want to do something, you have to go to Rome first. You no longer have the authority to exercise your own laws. You no longer have the authority to execute your own criminals. That's the reason Starting in 7 AD, that's the reason why the priests have to take Jesus to Pontius Pilate later on in order to be executed, because they can't do it themselves. They have to seek uh, the legal rubber stamping of Rome. And at this point in time... The Sanhedrin, the the priesthood, actually starts bewailing in the streets of Jerusalem. The Torah is fallen. The Torah has been broken. The scepter has departed from Israel. Now, that prophecy basically says that the scepter shall not depart from Israel until, until, from Judah, excuse me, until Shiloh comes. Shiloh roughly translated meaning the one to whom it belongs. They believed that Torah was broken. They believed the word of God has failed. What they didn't know is that by that time a toddler was playing around in his father's carpenter shop who would be the Messiah of Israel. The scepter will not depart from Judah until the one to whom it belongs has come. Next time we meet, we'll be talking about Exodus, regarded as the birth of the nation of Israel. In the meantime, as you're considering discussion with your coffee groups or small groups, share your reading, share your journal highlights, whatever you've... You've penned down what have I been challenged with, what did I know to be true already, what has surprised me. And I want you to consider, along with the Bible, this. What is slavery? What is slavery? I don't mean this glibly. I I want you to actually think about a definition of what it means to be in slavery. I want you to consider this question. Have you ever been a slave to someone or to something? Have you ever felt that way? Have, Have you ever lost your ability to be able to empower yourself to overcome something? Have you ever been enthralled by something that you weren't able to break away from? Do you know of someone in that condition today? That there's something in someone's life that you know of, that, that is, is prohibiting them from a healthy life or from a life that is blessed, something that is shackling them into a situation that they're better off without, I want you to think about this question. Is it possible to to be a slave to something and not know it? Is it possible to be a slave to something and not know it, to be a slave unaware? To believe a situation is so normalized that you make excuses for it, even though it's shackling you. So you just let it go. What does or what should all of that mean to us? What as a Christian? And I want you to think about this, yes, from a a literal perspective, but I also want you to think about it from a spiritual perspective. What does all of that mean to us? What does it mean to be in servitude? What does it mean to be a slave? What does it mean to not have control of your own personhood? What does it mean? To be so enthralled by someone or something that you no longer have the ability to exercise a degree of control over yourself. Consider that. Because just as Exodus has an echo in the New Testament, as Passover has an echo in the Lord's Supper, it's something that I want you to consider. Any questions before we dismiss the scene? All right, if not, let's bow our hearts. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather. We thank you, Lord, for the message. We thank you for being a God who sustains us in times of trial, who protects us. We thank you for being a God who, like Jacob, saw past our faults. And, Lord, in our need, you rescued us, you freed us, you'd empowered us, and you brought us into your family. So help us to be a blessing to others. Help us to recognize our place in your kingdom. Help us, Lord, to be a reflection of that light, of that hope, of that love, to someone else before it is everlastingly too late, especially those who are shackled in chains and don't realize it. Help us to be the instrument of someone's freedom, to be the messenger of your redemption. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen.
0: (laughs) Thank you for joining us at High Lawn Baptist Church. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. At High Lawn, we believe that when you love God, you share his word. When you love others, you spread the gospel. We would love for you to join us next time, and if possible, to join us in person. To contact or learn more about us, to donate to our ongoing ministry, or most importantly, to learn about the salvation offered to you through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, visit us at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. Once again, thank you, and God bless you.